Now, if you did not commit a crime, you'd never confess to a crime, would you? You never would, right? Now, you watch these murder shows like I do, right? Snapped and Forensic Files and Dateline. You would never be capable of saying that you did something that you didn't do. But my guest, next guest would say, think again of all the people who have been convicted and exonerated by DNA testing. Almost 30% confessed to crimes they didn't commit. And some of these people were actually on death row awaiting their execution. What are police? Well, police are allowed to basically lie during interrogations. Should they be doing it? What are the techniques that that uh, police use that are effective and which ones may lead to wrongful convictions. With us to discuss police interrogation is an expert on the issue, Jim Trainum. He was a police officer with the Washington, D.C. Police Department for 27 years. He's a nationally known expert, author of many books, and a winner of Champion of Justice Award from the Innocence Network for championing efforts of the wrongfully convicted. Jim, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Well, thank you for having me. And that is a tough act to follow, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, Scott, Scott Turow and Stephen King singing, uh, singing rock stars. Yeah, Actually, my producer yes. said it sounds like the actual band, but they were like really drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Scott. Um, anyway, so thank you for, for coming. I, I, this is a topic that everyone just, you know, you hear this all the time, like, oh, no one would confess to the, the crime. Let's start with talking about the technique that policemen are taught uh, in getting confessions. And maybe we can start with that and then talk about how that those techniques run afoul. Well, sure. Um, one thing I would like to bring up is every time somebody asks me the question, well, why would somebody, conf- why would somebody confess to a crime that they didn't commit? My answer is always, well, why would you confess to a crime that you did commit? I mean, both things <laughs> are true. really, really stupid, you know? So there has to be something that we do as detectives in that interrogation room that convinces you that it's a good idea to do that. And the basic technique that we use all over the country, we're starting to change, but right now the majority of police interrogations are what I call the accusatory uh, approach. And the godfather and the foundation of the accusatory approach is what is known as the read technique. Now, the read technique was actually developed back in the 30s and the 40s as an answer to to the third degree, which is when police would actually beat people in order to get confessions out of them. Well, the courts kind of put a halt to that or tried to. And so the people who invented the read technique came up with this. It was revolutionary at the time. And it was actually a big step forward uh, for police officers. And, you know, basically it's a a two-part process. Um, But, you know, the foundation of it is you're going in there, you're basically giving the person, uh, you know, two options. Either you don't confess and bad things happen to you, or you do confess and it's not so bad or good things happen to you. It's designed to create the impression that your best option is to tell that investigator what they want to hear. Um, so let's. So, I think the best way to do this is maybe give us an example, Jim. Can can you do that? Sure. Um, and like I said, when I talk about the accusatory approach, there's a lot of people who teach this, but when you look at what they're teaching, it's basically the read technique with some different names behind it. And so this is pretty standard. And, uh, you know, the first step is I'm going to do the interview. 
and it's called a behavioral analysis interview. And the purpose of that interview is uh, for me to determine whether or not you're going to be deceptive or actually whether or not you're guilty. And we as detectives were taught that by watching somebody's body language, uh, watching the, listening to the way that they answer our questions, and even by using a series of 17 questions, we can determine with over 80% accuracy whether or not somebody's being deceptive or even if they're guilty. The thing about this is, and we've all seen this on TV, you know, the, the person who doesn't look at you, who avoids your answers, who gives you know, different different answers as to the same question as the interrogation progresses. Um, and we all feel that we are capable of being able to tell if somebody's said on a lie based on this stuff. Now, the people who develop this actually admit publicly that it's not based on any scientific research whatsoever. And the actual real research that is out there that has, for decades, has shown that the uh, accuracy of using this technique is far from not, is far from over 80%. It's no more than flipping a coin. And so here you have a detective who's, who's making a decision whether or not you're lying to them or whether or not you're guilty based on something that is actually pseudoscience. So, and that typically lasts only about 30 minutes or so. After that, if I've determined that you're guilty or lying to me, that's when I move into the interrogation process. So let's say, as a scenario, let's say that um, there's been money stolen from a cash register. Now, what I've done is I've interviewed everybody who had any access to that cash register. And based solely on my interview, no other evidence whatsoever, but solely on my interview, I have determined that you were the one who stole that money from that cash register. So what I do is I leave the room and I let you sit in there for 10, 15 minutes and kind of stew and think about the, you know, the error of your ways. And also I'm there, I'm letting your anxiety increase while I'm doing that. I then walk in and I have a big binder. And it has a bunch of papers in it, a bunch of, you know, DVDs and stuff like that. Oh, they're all blank. But, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to impress with you um, the strength of my investigation and, and, and the evidence I have. And the first thing I tell you is, <clears throat> excuse me, first thing I tell you is our investigation has proven that you were the one who stole the money from the cash register. The evidence is there. There is nothing that you can say that will change my mind. But wait, wait, All wait. I, wanna... I didn't do it. I, 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 why would I whoa, do whoa, it? Whoa, 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 wait, wait. Hear me out. Hear me out. Stay there. The evidence says that you did. All I want to know is why. Did you steal the money because? Now, what I'm doing now is, first off, I'm blocking your denials. Anytime you attempt to deny, I'm going to do that. Or if you attempt to explain, I'm going to turn it back around on you because the more you deny, what they teach is the more that you deny, the less likely you are to confess. Hmm. Now, the thing that I'm going to teach, I'm sorry. No, I just said, hmm. So, so uh. you get embedded. <laughs> so you get embedded in your situation. If I if I have the opportunity to deny that I did it, then I'm going to maybe continue to deny it because I've taken that position. Right. So, so. A theme is supposed to be a psychological or moral justification, but sometimes it wavers into legal uh, issues and all of that. A theme for this might be 
Well, you took the money because the cash register was open and anybody would have done it. Or you took the money because you've been behind on your bills and you're under a lot of stress, that sort of thing. Now, the Reed people have a book of over 2,000 different themes for everything but, you know, from animal uh, abuse to homicide. And what I do is I use these themes over and over again, and I just keep throwing themes out there. Um, And as you deny more, I say, well, wait a minute, hold on, hold on, we know you did it. Did you do it because? Now, I can also lie to you. I can tell you that we have witnesses. You know, five people told us that they saw you take the money. You know, there is no doubt in their mind. They gave us details. Uh, We can do all sorts of things like that. Um, Now, as we're doing this, like I said, we're saying this over and over and over again. It's a monologue. I'm no longer listening to you. What I'm trying to do is get you to confirm what I believe to be true. So at one point, at some point, uh, we're going to get to what we call the alternative question. And the alternative question is basically a forced choice uh, question um, where I'm going to say, look, we've been in here for three hours. You either stole that money because you're a low-life dope fiend, doesn't care about anybody else, and you just took it and ripped these people off, and you don't care. If that's the case, I'm out of here. I don't care what happens to you. The judge can throw the book at you. doesn't matter to me. But if you took the money, you took it because the cash register was open. Anybody would have been tempted. You were behind on your bills anyway, and you were going to pay it back. If that's the case, tell me, and we can work with that. But if it's not, I'm gone. So, wow. Based with those two choices and the fact that we have all of this evidence that's going to lock you into this anything, anyway, your best option in your mind, at least temporarily, is to tell me what I want to hear. So you make the admission, yeah, you're right, I did it because the cash register was open and, you know, I was just tempted. I was going to pay it back. Okay. And then you go into the details of the um of how this was supposed to have happened. Now, you know, one of the things that the Reed people teach is that the purpose of an interrogation is not to get a confession, but to get to the truth. But just think about what I laid out for you. Am I interested in the truth, or am I interested in just getting you to confirm what I believe to be the truth? And if I'm wrong to begin with, then we have the makings here for a potential false confession. Well, and, and if you really just think about this, you know, logically, when you're saying the first half an hour, you're you're basically assessing the situation with no scientific basis whatsoever. The guy maybe killed his wife, but he's got a smile on his face. Well, people don't smile if they killed their wife, you know, but, you know, who knows? <laughs> you know, people have different preconceived notions about how people grieve and how people react. Uh, some people get, you know, quiet and calm some people get very confrontational but you've already decided as a police officer after 30 right. minutes or so this if this guy did it and knowing that if you get that confession the case is done you're not even going to do right. any more investigation you're not going to go out and even you don't even want any evidence really that is contrary to the confession because jurors love confessions right they really put a lot of they put a lot of uh, credence and dna for sure but they they if they think like we just said a million times 
you know, if you confess to the crime, why would you unless you did it? Right. Two things here. First off, this technique is marketed as a way to increase your closure rate because you don't have to do a lot of police work. You just figure out who did it excuse me, based on your little analysis. And then you go in there, you get the confession and you move on. And the thing is, you know, like 30 percent of DNA exonerations um, were false confessions. However, even in cases where there's overwhelming DNA evidence, a lot of times it's impossible to get the case overturned because of the power of the confession. People will ignore overwhelming evidence just because somebody confessed. So the actual number of false confessions out there is probably pretty high, a lot higher than we're aware of. But the other issue is that, you know, witnesses, we are taught that if we have a witness who we do not believe is telling us the truth, that we go into interrogation mode. We accuse them of having participated in the crime, you know, that sort of thing. And so we use the same techniques that can lead to a false confession uh, on witnesses and could potentially get false witness statements. And the incidence of wrongful convictions based on false witness statements is also pretty high. So let's, um, we only have a minute here, um, but I want to, I'm going to give out the numbers because some people have some questions here. 312-981-7200. And can you quickly, I mean, literally within 40 seconds, tell us what, when does a person have a right to an attorney? Anytime. They don't need to talk to the police at all. Now, the thing is, I'm also kind of, you know, being in a situation where I've, needed to get people to cooperate, uh, you know, that's kind of cutting my own throat right there. However, anytime anybody gets to the position where they feel that the police are beginning to ask questions where they're accusing them of the crime, they need to stop immediately and get an attorney. Now, we are very well trained and how to get past that. Hold on one second. Uh, we're running out of time. Let's, let's hold that thought, and we'll come back. We'll talk more with Jim Trainum about uh, false confessions and police interrogations. You're listening to The Karen Conti Show on WGN. We're here with Jim Trainum. He is a seasoned uh, former police officer. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the interesting stories is that when he was a very young police officer, he got someone to confess who actually didn't do the crime, and that sort of started him down the road of uh, studying the issue of false confessions. We don't have a lot of time, but I want to leave some room for a little demonstration that we want to do. But Jim, can you tell us what recommendations you have made to change this technique that police officers use that um, leads to wrongful convictions in some cases? Well, the first thing is, if you're going to use the read technique, you need to know what you shouldn't do, what read actually teaches you shouldn't do. And then you need to take the next step which is to corroborate the actual information that you get. Because the read technique does produce good confessions, but unfortunately it can also lead to false confessions. And the way that you figure out a false confession is, are they giving you information that actually conforms with the crime scene, that stuff that only the per- true perpetrator would have known? The problem is, is during the interrogation process, we oftentimes feed them that information. 
So a person who's desperate to get out from under a bad situation picks up on those clues, and they're able to incorporate it into their final story. So I actually teach a method that's recommended on how to evaluate the reliability of the confession evidence afterwards. You also have to be aware of things like confirmation bias, which is when you're so convinced that somebody's guilty that you kind of ignore the evidence that excludes them, uh, that points to their innocence, and you only concentrate on what's guilt, on the stuff that you think makes them look guilty right there. Yeah, and we, we, you know, when you look backward on Monday morning quarterbacking and you see the cases of wrongful convictions, uh, you see that, that police do that. And again, this is nothing against police officers. They have a very difficult job and they want a conviction. They want to take people off the street. But sometimes uh, that rush to judgment uh, leads leads to the wrong person. Um, you know, let's, we have a little bit of time here and I definitely want you to come back because this is fascinating. But I think everybody, uh, our listeners have followed this case from Idaho. And this is the four college students who were brutally stabbed in their rental home. Um, weeks went by. There was speculation about all kinds of things. We didn't know much. And finally, we have somebody who uh, the police arrested. Uh, we arrested, he arrested Brian Kohlberger, who uh, had taken his car and driven to back to his home in Pennsylvania from Washington State, where he lived right over the border from where the crimes occurred. So again, I'm not saying that he did it. I'm saying he's presumed innocent and and who knows what the evidence is. We don't know all of it yet. We know bits and pieces. But I thought, Jim, if you could kind of give a quick demonstration on how, if you had Brian Koberger in the interrogation room, and he doesn't have a lawyer, he hasn't lawyered up, he's willing to talk to you. Can you tell us like what's going on in your head and how you would go about interrogating him? Well, I would use the new methods that have been created what's called investigative interviewing, which is geared towards getting information and not a confession. And one of the things that I would do is I would focus in on the evidence that I do have, which is primarily from what I've read, the, the car, the phone records, and the DNA on the knife. And I would ask myself, are there alternative explanations for this evidence? Am I interpreting it wrong? So, the first thing I would do is I would have him give me an account as detailed as possible of where he was around the time that the crime occurred. And I would tell him, I want as many details as you can. And so he would give me the account, and then I would burrow in. Like if he said that he drove, that he went to a restaurant, which restaurant? What did you order? How did you pay for it? Things that I can go back and check. Now, after I've gone through this and burrowed down into his account as, as deeply as I could, I would then start to ask him questions about the evidence, such as the car. Does anybody, you own this type of car, right? Does anybody else have access to your car? Does anybody else have your car keys? Things along that line. The phone records. I would ask him, does anybody have access to your phone? Uh, have you loaned it out to anybody? Things along that line. Because what I'm doing is I'm blocking off any kind of excuse that he may come up with later. If he tells me that, no, nobody drives my car but me, nobody has my phone but me, well, then down the road, I'm going to start to confront him with the evidence. I'm not going to lie about any of the evidence. I'm going to just confront him with what we know and ask him for an explanation. Our our investigation has determined that your phone 
was pinged uh, near the crime scene during these these hours. Can you account for that? Giving him a chance to explain or and the thing about it is if he's going to not explain or if he's going to lie, a lie can be as good as a confession. But pretty much do it that way. It's very non-accusatory. You're giving them a chance to offer explanations, and you're also, in the case if he's guilty, you're blocking off any excuse that he may be able to use, you know, down the road. That's, um, that's it, very it's interesting. Very effective. Yeah, yeah it, it's very effective. That's a that's it in a really short nutshell. It's much more uh, complex than that. It takes a lot of time and work, but it it's real detective work. It's a real investigative interview. And you get tons of information, and it minimizes the contamination that may come during the interrogation and the problems that are associated with the, uh, the reader accusatory approach. Jim Trainum, thank you so much for joining us. Like We could go on and on on this. This is Jim Trainum. I know he was retiring soon, but his book is available on Amazon, How the Police Generate False Confession, an Inside Look at the Interrogation Room. Thank you so much, and enjoy uh, your semi-retirement. My guess is that you're going to continue to work <laughs> after, your, after your retirement day, but I appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank All you. All right. Take care.